good. The fool flew all the way up here in a blizzard. Harry, how about your banquet in New York? Oh, I left right in the middle of it. As soon as I got Mary's telegram. Good idea, Ernie. A toast. <laughs> to my big brother, George, the richest man in town. <laughs> Hello, everyone, and welcome to yet another episode of uh, Heroic Purgatory, an Asian cinema podcast. This is a special episode because it's not, uh, we're not really discussing uh, any particular Asian films like we've done so far in this season, but we're just uh, kind of having fun with it and uh, uh, doing a so called Christmas special where I think what we're doing is we're just going to talk about what our favorite Christmas movies are. Uh, and uh, maybe, um, you know, offer you some recommendations in case uh, you're looking for the perfect film to watch this Christmas. But uh, first of all, how are you doing, Jason? Yeah, I'm, I'm doing fine. i um, busy with Christmas shopping and um, haven't been back to work uh, since the start of this month due to another lockdown. So, well, uh, due to the museum closing, so. Yeah. So, are you are you by yourself? Or are you maybe going back to your family? How? What? What's your uh, Christmas routine? So, I'll be going back to family and spending time with them and uh, watching films. Hopefully. Uh yeah. I mean, same here. I my work is not impacted per se, but I'm I'm not I'm not going home or anything. I'm uh, uh I mean, that's I don't usually go home for Christmas. At least I haven't gone lately. Uh, so it's going to be mostly me and maybe a couple of friends. We'll see how that goes. All right. So um, what we'll do before we actually start, you know, our discussion of uh, Christmas movies, we'll talk, we'll go through the usual segments of our podcast. And the first one is uh, what we've been watching or what we've been doing uh, since last time we spoke. So why don't you start, Jason, and tell us how, how your last two weeks have been. Um, so the last two weeks have been spent uh, watching a lot of films and um, uh, playing uh, Front Mission Free, which I actually finished uh, on Tuesday this week. So I put in like 72 hours into that game and um, I probably could have used it more productively, but that was over the course of about six months. Yeah. And so it's like an hour every morning since I wake up at like five. And um, Oh boy. Yeah, are, you, are you an... Are you an early bird, a bird, or is it just recently that you've been naked, wake up so early? Early bird. Like, my first part-time job was as a cleaner, and so, like, once you get into that routine, you don't really get out of it, I find. Okay, so what are you, I'm curious, what time do you usually go to bed at night? Uh, I go to bed at around 10. Oh, I see. Okay. So, yeah, the routine is usually to try and finish the day by having an hour of reading a book. Um, but uh, I replaced it with Front Mission Free, um, and uh, I have to say I enjoyed the game tremendously. Um, so if you're looking for a strategy role-playing game um, with uh, uh, international uh, conflict between big power blocks of Europe, North America, Russia, China, and um, Japan as well, uh, yeah, that's the one for you because uh, You've got robots, uh, you've got people uh, piloting robots in different countries, uh, taking part in uh, wars and um, special ops missions. Uh, it's turn-based strategy, and um, there's a lot of customization of robots, and uh, yeah, it's fun. 
I, I wonder, have you played um, uh, Xenogears? I have. I completed that one earlier this year. Okay, is it is it like that? Because that's also an RPG, like a Japanese RPG with, uh, if I remember correctly, has uh, like a mecha component to it? Yes. Um, it's a sci-fi RPG, whereas um, from Mission 3 is more of a real robot type of thing, like Pat Labor. Um Xenogears is set in the far, far, far future on another planet, and it's a turn-based uh, role-playing game. Uh, there's no uh, movement involved in the combat, but there is an overworld screen and um, different hub areas which you can travel around. Uh, that was the story I put about uh, 60 hours into, and um, the story's a bit of a mess. Um, it's legendary because uh, like the production of the game went way over budget, and um, Square Enix needed to rein it in, so they asked the director to cut content, and he effectively turned it into sort of a visual novel for the second half of the game. Yeah, so that's what I remember. But I, I remember being uh, um, this again. I've played this game many, many years ago. So forgive me if I get some of the facts wrong. But I do remember that the second part was significantly different. Like the second disc, I think. I think it was only a two disc game. Uh, yeah, the second second one's full blown sci fi with genetic mutations and like giant space battles and so forth. And it goes really really dark with genocide and eugenics um a lot of uh the the, the world is contracted to a few hub areas uh, contracted to uh, uh to like a uh, few characters and it gets smaller and smaller as you get uh, go through the game um it's massively melodramatic uh but it's still an enjoyable time that's what I was going to say, because you mentioned the story was kind of a mess. I remember that it was, you know, the gameplay changed significantly in the second disc, but I still remember being impressed and really enjoying the story of that, of that game. The, the first disc, it seems like a typical sort of Clash of Empires type of thing, and then, like, the storyline and the themes expand greatly, and um, there's so much uh, text to go through, and it's packed full of psychology um religion and also science and um politics uh like in terms of it being a mess like compared to the first disc where you get a lot of gameplay you get a lot of exploration um the second disc um uh, restricts you a lot more yeah i think that was probably intended to be stretched out over three or maybe even four discs uh, so that probably hurt the the pacing, or you know, just the way you consume this. You're meant to consume the story. Yeah, yeah. As previously mentioned, um, it was over budget, and um, I think it came out around the same time as Final Fantasy VII. And so, okay, was it? I I thought it was a little later, but but yeah, that's it was definitely late nineties, so oh. somewhere around time. Or at the very least, it was being produced at the same time. But like, it's like its scope is epic. So if you want a epic sci-fi tale, then this is the one. Uh, this is the one for you. Yeah, you should uh, revisit it. Um, I think it's still available to download on the PlayStation Vita store online. Uh, definitely in the US. I'm not sure about uh, the UK, but definitely the US. I don't I don't have a PlayStation Vita but I played this game way back in the original PlayStation and I remember it uh this along with Final Fantasy 9 
which is the best Final Fantasy, by the way. Um, <laughs> uh, 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 I, I remember I had these two games, or I think I think I got Xenogears a little after. But, but uh, anyway, I had a bunch. I had there was a, a just three or four games that I was playing on the original PlayStation One, and uh, and you know, of course, the PlayStation Two had already arrived, so I was I was a little bit outdated in my in my gaming gear. And uh, I remember my PlayStation 1 broke, so I kind of, that's around the time that I discovered emulators, and I think I finished Final Fantasy IX, and I played this game um, with emulators. Uh, and I, so, so that was my introduction. I, that's why I remember it so well, but it's been, it's been a long time. Yeah, I, I specifically bought a PlayStation Vita to play RPGs from this time period. Um, just having the ability to download um, some of the games that I missed and... Um, have them in one convenient place was fantastic. Yeah, that, that's that's why I had a PS3 actually to play all these old games, uh, and uh, and then I was very disappointed to find out, and it's one of the reasons why I never got a PS4 is because uh, you could buy you could buy like these classics uh, that they I think they called on the PlayStation Network, but then if you got to to PS4, if you bought a P- if you upgraded to PS4, even though you you would have kept the same PlayStation Network account, these games would no longer work on the PS4, and that was massively disappointing for me. And that's why I never uh, got into P- uh, got a PS4. At least I don't know if they eventually changed that throughout the lifetime of PS4, but at least around the time that it came out, this was not an option. So that was very disappointing for me. Yeah, like backwards compatibility is still a massive thing for the game community. Um... People are anxious about the PlayStation 5 having backwards compatibility, and it does have uh, the ability to play PlayStation 4 games, but I don't think it has the ability to play any of the older classic games. You're talking about 5 now? Yeah, PlayStation 5. Yeah, I think, I think I've heard something along those lines. And now you are restricted to buying classic games for a particular console. So if you've got a PlayStation Vita, you can access the PlayStation Vita store. If you have a PlayStation 4, you can access PlayStation 4 store and so forth. Yeah, uh, I I mean, I I don't have any of those, but I do have a Switch. And a lot of these games are also being, I guess, a square uh, and uh, and Nintendo are uh, bearing the hatchet. So a lot of these classic at least square RPGs um, like the Mana series and uh, all the older Final Fantasy are coming out for the Switch. I, I've only uh, bought um, uh, bought a, a few of them. Uh, and I, I, actually, I think I mentioned this a, a few episodes ago and I still haven't progressed much that I bought the Final Fantasy VII for the Switch. Yeah. And I, I, I just... Ah, God, I, I find that game so boring, especially the first disc. Up to the part where, like, a spoiler alert, a major character dies. Uh, then it starts to pick up, uh, uh, and I've never progressed much that, but just that getting through that first part is just, I find it so boring and so badly paced. Uh, like, I, it just, it's very hard for me to get through it. Do you find that, like, having played modern games uh, now, that it's harder to go back to older games? Well, that's the thing. I'm not. I'm, I've mentioned this before. I'm not much of a gamer, so my experience with modern games is extremely minimal. Like I've, I've mostly play older games, and even even the games that I play now occasionally are usually older games. 
like uh, as a as a fun fact. And I'm sorry we we're kind of derailing the conversation. <laughs> I'll let you back to your list. But yesterday I kind of I looked up at my uh, GOG. I don't know if you know what that is. Good old good games. old games. Yeah, yeah. I looked at my library and I found that I had at some point I had purchased a, an Eye of the Beholder bundle. There are a bunch of games from the late '80s or early '90s, and I started playing one of them. Uh, I didn't get very far, and you know, and it's it is it is a bit dated by modern standards. Even someone like me who doesn't play many modern games realized that. But I don't know. I, I I enjoyed it, and I was you know I have GTA Five in my computer, and I had Eye of the Beholder, and I I chose to play Eye of the Beholder just because that's that's kind of the kind of game that I I gravitate towards. Yeah, I I I don't know if it's age, but I find myself um, more nostalgic for games of the past, like the Monkey Island series, um, and also these RPGs, which is specifically why I got the Vita. But I tried um, going back to Fallout 1, and I found it re- uh, really slow going, <laughs> tough time. Well, it, it, it's funny. Well, you mentioned a couple of things that I just want to jump into. Uh, first of the Fallout 1, I, I kind of felt the same way with you, although to be fair, I didn't give it much of a chance. But I think if I kind of like maybe powered through the beginning, I would get used to it because I'm a, even though I didn't find the first I only played it a few minutes but I didn't find this compelling I do the same people that kind of made Fallout and then Fallout 2 were involved in one of my favorite game series and that is the Baldur's Gate game series. Oh yeah. Yeah, so I I love those two games. Uh I've played Baldur's Gate 2 multiple times and and I think the first Fallout I think it was a different team but some of the Baldur's Gate team was involved. I'm not sure how uh, they were more involved in Fallout 2, I think, something like that. I don't remember exactly. But it sort of it uses the same engine, I think, the same game engine. Yeah. Uh so 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 like I think I think if I just you know persisted a little bit more, I think I would eventually get into Fallout. And um so that was my comment number one. The other thing is you mentioned the Monkey Island game. That's another thing that I play I uh, probably play the most is uh point and click adventure games. Yeah. Uh a lot of I, I'm not I'm not that huge into the Monkey Island games. I've only played the first one. I find uh, the the humor style is not kind of. Uh, I appreciate that they the how they have approached the games, but it's I don't find it that funny. And I also find the uh, the engine that they use those the scum engine where you pick the verbs of what you want to do. I find it a little bit um, too outdated, even for me. But but otherwise, I love point and click games like. Um, uh, the ones, especially the ones released by Revolution Software. Oh, Broken uh, Sword. A, Broken Sword and... Um, Beneath the Steel Sky. Be- Beneath the Steel Sky. And I just, I finished their sequel. I, I mean, I, I essentially got it on day uh, on day one that it came out, the Beyond the Steel Sky. Yeah, how was that? Oh, uh, it was pretty good. I, I don't think it's as good as the, as the first one, but again, could be... Uh, could just be my nostalgia glasses. I'm fully aware of that. I I think a lot of people would agree that it's not, it's not as great. I think the original one was a a real kind of tour de force in independent, uh, um, uh, game development. You know, quote unquote independent because it 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 sort of fits into that category. But again, it just I think the aesthetic and you know considering the limitation of the technology that they were developing it for. And the soundtrack that was a fun fact was uh, composed by one of the programmers. They didn't have a dedicated composer for that original uh, game, uh, and it's pretty pretty memorable. Yeah, um, I just think the original Beneath a Steel Sky is um, um, is a little better, but I did enjoy Beyond a Steel Sky, and I would wholeheartedly recommend it. Uh, and the Broken Sword series, of course, is fantastic. I think they've 
maybe the fourth one was the one the most criticized, and I agree, but I think they've stayed uh, consistently good over the years, and the last one was pretty good too. In fact, I enjoyed the last one maybe the most, even though people argue that the first one is the best. Uh, still, they're all pretty good. Ah, the last one's actually on the PlayStation 4. Oh, is it? I've, I don't know. The, the, the idea of playing a point-and-click game on a console seems very very strange to me. I mean, it's in the name. It's point-and-click. How can you do that without a mouse? <laughs> You're talking to someone who played Broken Sword on uh, Game Boy Advance. <laughs> which, which one? The first one. Oh, okay. I think I think you're talking about the remake because the original was not on a Game Boy. Oh no, I definitely I still have the first two, which are PC CD-ROMs. I also got Broken Sword on a handheld console, which I think was the Game Boy Advance. So I played it with like cursor and A B buttons. Okay. I mean, I I can imagine that it. I mean, I don't know. I've never. I did have Broken Sword three on an Xbox, uh, hmm. on an X on the original Xbox. And uh, I mean, it wasn't too terrible. I think they had done a good job at uh, at porting it. But then I replayed it on a PC a couple of years later, and I think the PC experience was much more enjoyable. Okay. Uh, just to go back to um, Fallout, if you uh, enjoy the first game, it might be worth checking out the Wasteland series because um, Brian Fargo, the guy, well, like sort of like the brains behind the Fallout series, the first two games at least, he and uh, some of the people who worked on those games started the Wasteland series, and it's in a similar vein, like post-apocalyptic America, lots of Americana, although um, like the latest one is um, um, heavily inspired by the Reagan era. Yeah, I mean, I'll check it out. What it, I'm, I'm assuming this is a relatively recent series? Yeah, it's on good old games. There are three games uh, so far, and the latest one came out a couple of months ago. And is it also an RPG, or is it more like a first-person shooter like the later Fallout games? Right, it's an RPG in the style of the original Fallout. Okay, I mean, yeah, I'll, I'll definitely check them out. Um, um, you know, Christmas time is coming, I'm probably going to have a little bit more time to play games, hopefully. Yeah, if you go on good old games, you might be able to find the first Wasteland uh, uh going for free they occasionally put it on sale for like zero dollars yeah no that's the i'm gonna i'm gonna check that because i know yeah both steam and good old games have uh uh have deals around around now the holiday so that'd be something interesting to check out yeah and um there's another point and click adventure where you play a, a cop uh i can't remember what it's called but i've been <laughs> it's got excellent reviews i've been really interested in it for a long time Okay, with DJ. Is, is it the, is it the oh, Blackwell series? Not the Blackwell series. Uh, is it the Gemini Roo? Gemini Gemini Roo? Something like no, that. No, it's you play a cop and. Uh, is it Police Quest? Like, is it an old series? Oh no, no, no! It's not that old. It's relatively recent, like two years old, or it one or one year old. Uh, it's, it's, got quite a few awards uh i'm checking my good old games email right now looking for the details uh, again we, like i mentioned at the beginning this is the christmas ah. episode so we have no structure we'll just kind of wander like that for the entire episode so i i apologize in advance to our listeners <laughs> uh disco elysium <laughs> Oh, I I haven't played it, but I I know that. Let me. Uh, I'm, I'm I I just brought up my Steam library to see if I I have it. 
Uh, I, I, I'm definitely aware of that. Uh, but have you played it? I have not played it. I keep uh, wanting to download it. I've heard nothing but good things about it. I've played um, Wasteland 1, which is really enjoyable. So I can recommend yeah. that. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that, so yeah, I, I really enjoy these point-and-click ones, but the, the the one downside is... Oh, I think the last one that I played was the original uh, Gabriel Knight Sins of the Fathers game. Ah, okay. Uh, uh, but uh, but the downside of this one is that they tend to be pretty short. Uh, mm-hmm. And they're, you know, sometimes the gameplay is so minimal that they are kind of, to use a phrase that you mentioned earlier, like a visual novel or an interactive movie. <laughs> yeah. Sometimes. Yeah, I was, I was uh, watching a Dark Seed playthrough, an Amiga game, and it's, yeah, you get to click on a few items and then carry on to the next screen. Yeah. One, uh, like a, an, an atrocious example of that is not exactly a point and click, but it's kind of like a point and click. Uh, is a, a a um a game called To the Moon. Hmm, I've heard of it. I it's, haven't played it. it. It's a recent one, and the visual aesthetic is um, it's intentionally made to resemble the old NES and SNES RPGs. So yeah. you know the little characters and like kind of semi two D three D perspective. Yeah, um, essentially like an old Final Fantasy game or an old uh, Chrono Trigger or whatever. But so again, the gameplay is a joke. There's hardly any in it, but the story is so phenomenal. I, I, I challenge anyone to play that game without holding, uh, without shedding a few tears because it's such a such a great story. Okay. Well, if if anybody accepts that challenge, <laughs> please let us know. <laughs> yeah. So it's to the moon, uh, and it's you can. I mean, it's a you know, it's an indie game, so you can probably find it for very cheap. Hmm. Okay, so um, enough about anyway, video so, games, I suppose. <laughs> yeah, to what? So you you finished uh, Front Mission Three this week? What else? Or recently? What else? Uh, I have not played any video games since then. I made a solemn pledge that I would uh, see out the rest of this year by reading books and practicing Japanese. <laughs> so that's like seventy-two hours on a game. Uh, whenever I see big numbers like that, I always uh, feel big regret. <laughs> Um, but you know, I enjoyed it, and I enjoyed the game, and um, I, so I shouldn't have any regrets. Uh, right. So, in terms of what I've been reading, I went back to the summer of Abume, um, and uh, yeah, I've been practicing Japanese, and uh, I've been watching a lot of films. Oh, my review for Kiyoshi Kurosawa's To the Ends of the Earth was published last week. I, I saw uh, that. Yeah. Uh, it's uh. Um, it's a great film travelogue slash character study um, with a phenomenal performance by Atsuko Maeda so if you have the chance to watch the film it's two hours long It uh, I can imagine some audience members feel like it's meandering but it has a point watching this central character develop over the course of the film and um, it has uh, some barnstorming uh, musical numbers uh, other films I watched, uh, The Thing from Another, Another Planet, which is on uh, BBC iPlayer, uh, be, uh, specifically for this podcast, as you'll find out later on, um, and a lot of the films from uh, the Christmas list, I'm trying to think if I... So let's, let's keep them, let's not kind of reveal them all right now, we'll keep them for when we actually do that segment. Yeah. And uh, 
and I've been watching lots of uh, new Japanese films, some from major studios, some from independent uh, filmmakers. Uh, and I've watched, uh, oh, this is in preparation for next year. Uh, uh, I don't know how much I can say at this stage um, about what is in preparation for, but um, I've also watched uh, uh, some classic uh, Japanese films as well. Um, uh, let's see, what was it called? Uh, Gan or The Mistress. Um, and uh, I rewatched that after watching it earlier this year. Uh, a really moving tale about a lower class woman who's tricked into marrying a moneylender and finds she's trapped in a horrible relationship. And um, yeah, uh, that was sort of my two weeks apart from like going out, doing Christmas shopping and uh, visiting relatives. Yeah, that seems like a, an exciting uh, couple of weeks that you've... Uh... That you've and I'm I'm sure you know given the holidays you'll you'll get to watch and read a lot more. Yeah, I've got uh, quite a few Japanese movies lined up, um, and I've been uh, holding them back for too long now. Uh, so I'm going to spend quite a few days trying to whittle down the list. Okay. So uh I'm 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 going to go quickly through mine. Um I finally I finally watched um a Train to Busan. I mentioned ah. many episodes ago that I still hadn't seen that and I finally uh, a few days ago I decided I said uh, you know what I have to um I have to finally watch it. Uh and uh, just to give you to give my opinion in short is that I I enjoyed the film but I was not blown away by it. Um, I don't know why my expectations had been raised so so high because it's it's been all over the media and it's it got it got a lot of attention when it came out and it got a lot of attention from especially the Asian like the circle of Asian website that I I tend to frequent uh, and I I didn't I I don't have much negative to say to for for it but I just I don't know I I found it a relatively a very well done but relatively ordinary zombie film. Okay, I like. Like the concept of like zombies being blind in the dark and tracking people uh, through sound and being stuck in close confines was actually quite uh, well deployed in the film. Well, absolutely, but I don't think it's novel. I think other other media has taken advantage of that. Uh, I don't. I, again, I, I'm I'm sorry. I can't. Maybe I'm being. Uh, because I can't think of any other top of my head, but I find it I would find it hard to believe that that was novel to this film. No, I think I've seen the concepts come around yeah. in different uh media such as The Last of Us. Um I believe the zombies there are blind and hunt by okay. sound. Uh and they're also runners like twenty eight days later. Which is another thing that maybe kinda uh went towards diminishing the movie a little bit because I'm very much in the camp of slow zombies. If if I ever, of course, I mean it doesn't matter the 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 riders can can ride their zombies however they want, but if I had to choose what 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 my favorite kind of zombies are, I'm very much in the camp of zombies should be slow instead of zombies can be fast and agile and can do remarkable things that the human bodies that they were they would they possess would not be able to do. Uh, but that's you know that's somewhat of a, a different point. Yeah, it's uh, like the best 
zombie movie in recent years, I would have to say is I Am a Hero, uh, a Japanese movie, which is based on a manga, and that features slow zombies. So if you get the chance, please check it out and let, let us know what you think. Uh, yeah. But yeah, like I said, I agree with you. It whatever uh, the concepts that it that it played with, it it employed them very well, uh, very uh, uh, very competently. So I have I don't have anything to point out as a flaw. I just you know found it re- relatively um, you know uh, straightforward, for lack of a better term, and yeah. uh, and you know a competent film, but it didn't blow my mind. And maybe that was just a matter of expectation. Maybe maybe my expectation for the film was. Raised to such a level that it was that it kind of uh, colored my view of it. Yeah, sometimes a film can just just be well made. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, and I think I think Train to Busan definitely meets that criterion. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and I've also been on a on a little bit of a political bend. So I've I've watched a few political films like uh, Hotel Rwanda. I hadn't seen that uh, with uh, Don Cheadle. Mm-hmm. I watched uh, the recent Netflix film, The Trial of the Chicago Seven, uh, directed by uh, Aaron Sorkin. That? Yeah, that's right, the famous screenwriter. Uh, very well done. I recommend the film. Uh, I thought it was uh, it was it was great. Uh, and I also watched uh, Frost Nixon, which I enjoyed the film, but I think it took some liberties with the material as to uh, to kind of enhance the drama that I, I kind of annoyed me a little bit, but I, I guess every biopic has to do that to a certain extent. Hmm. Just to make an, a film that would just be an interview sort of more cinematic, is it? Exactly, yeah. Like, I think uh, the, the original Frost-Nixon interviews were, that, that didn't happen where, you know, Nixon dragged through the first three interviews and then only revealed everything in the final interview. I think... Like the interview was very interesting and very revelative from the beginning, uh, but in the film they kind of build up to that. So, it, like they show the interviews initially be, being as boring and very, uh, very bad for the, uh, for the, um, what's his name, David Frost. Uh, Frost, yeah, yeah. Uh, but again, it's it's understandable. It's just um, uh, like um, like a, what was the other film uh, uh, with uh, the three women that. Did the math to send the rocket oh, to the moon? Hidden figures. Hidden figures. Great film. Very enjoyable. Great acting. Wildly inaccurate and wildly uh, uh, false in terms of what really happened and how it depicts the events. And and you know, it just it's something that I feel needs to point to be pointed out, but not necessarily uh, something that diminishes the value of the film. Yeah. Uh, okay. And I started watching a, a new series that I've been enjoying very much, and that is Utopia, uh, the 2014, 2013, 2014 British series. Okay, so not the Amazon remake. No, I watched a f- the first episode of the Amazon remake, and I didn't like it that much. Uh, again, that's only one episode, so who knows? But but I, I kind of then I find I found out that um, that there this is based on a British series. And uh, I checked that out, and I, I found it much better made. I'm I'm really liking the visual the visual aesthetic of the of the series. It just stands out so much, and I think it's used so well. Yeah. Uh, it's I, I was aware of it at the time, but I never actually watched it. Okay, it's it's a, a sort of a an X Files types of series, but uh, much more R rated than X Files. Okay. So like, full of conspiracies about a pharmaceutical company or something like that yeah 
like lots of brutal violence from what I've read. Yeah, although uh, surprisingly, I don't think I don't think as much as the uh, the Amazon. I think the Amazon one just amps up the violence even more. This is that like uh, in terms of violence, we're talking like gun gunplay and uh, explosions, like very American type of thing. Whereas is uh, in contrast, is the British one much more simple and brutal, like hammers? No, and no, the, the the Amazon one is also you know brutal and and very visceral, very simple with. Uh, you know, blood and uh, and I think if I remember correctly, the like there's a torture scene in the first episode. I think the American one is a little bit more explicit in that torture scene than the British one. Okay, yeah. it'd be interesting to check the two out. Yeah, I think I'm, I might. Uh, although I read somewhere that the American one was canceled, uh, so I don't know if there's any point. I was planning to finish the British one and then go back to finish the American one. But uh, the American one was cancelled. Apparently, it didn't do so well. So I'm not sure if it's worth going back to it. But I still might. Who knows? Yeah. Okay, and that's pretty much all I've been uh, doing these couple of weeks. Uh, it wasn't as uh, as productive as I want to, but I still got to watch a few interesting things. Cool. So other than that, we do have. Uh, I mean, we didn't. Uh, we didn't. Uh, create a like a, a plan for this week but i i do have a couple of uh uh news items written down on my on my personal notes here and the the big one is that uh as you actually brought this to my attention jason is that uh, south korean uh, director kim ki duk died yesterday right yeah he died in estonia was it estonia or latvia uh oh estonia or latvia oh, i can't remember but he had traveled to the country was it this year or last year and he was in the process of getting citizenship it was latvia okay and he he was hoping to film a new oh to make a new film there as well when he and and this is as as of our recording this was yesterday correct or the day before some okay was it December? It was December 11th, so we're recording this on December 12th. The news broke yesterday yeah. on December 11th. Okay, yeah. And obviously, uh, I've, I mean, I've, I've made it no secret that he's a, a favorite director of mine, but it's also worth pointing out that he was a somewhat of a controversial figure accused of uh, various uh, charges of assault and sexual harassment of his actresses. And, uh, and I think he was... Uh, charged uh he was uh declared guilty for some of them and then cleared for some of them although it's uh, considering his celebrity status it's hard to it's it's somewhat hard to really assess how much of it he may be guilty of he's certainly guilty of some some something um and how much of it it might just be uh libel or uh, whatever else you want to call it yeah, did he not sue the actresses who accused him of um, defamation? And did he not lose the case? I I know that he sued it. I don't know that I don't know that the case ever concluded. But yeah, uh, you you are right. I don't know if he lost the case, but I do. Uh, it made sense that he would lose the case because he's a public figure. But uh, but yeah, he did definitely sue sue at least more than one person for defamation. Yeah, fr- from what I understand, and. Um, yeah, yeah, I could be wrong because, like, I'm not in the Korean film industry in any capacity, and I don't have any Korean language skills. But, um, like, he was effectively shut out of the Korean. Like, he's always been independent of the Korean film industry, and um, following him, I believe he lost the trial. I'm not uh, not 100 percent sure, but following that, 
he was shut out of the Korean film industry altogether. And I think his last film was a Japanese, right? Yeah, it was um, inspired by like the Fukushima disaster, I think. Or it, um, you know, it incorporates that into its story. And um, I don't think it did too well. Yeah, and, uh, and I think that that's probably why he was in Latvia and trying to make a film there. No, yeah, like, I, I, yeah, what more is there to say? <laughs> I think just that, you know, it's uh, the, the thing that I mentioned either last episode, a couple of episodes ago, is that, you know, often things and people and situations are complicated. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's not, it's never a good idea to either idolize someone or try to reduce their life into uh, one act or one work of, of uh, uh, one work of art or anything, people you know often have positive sides and negative sides, and sometimes uh, you know uh, w- they're both e- extremely great in magnitude. Like it looked like it was the case of Kim Ki Duke, and it's just you know like something that is important to keep in mind as we look ba- look back and analyze these controversial figures in the in the world of cinema. That uh, there's plenty of them, certainly uh, in the kind of in this in this field that we are into. Yeah, it's like the the troubled artist, the rebel. Um, we're beginning to reassess a lot of figures, and um, those reassessments get worked into how we interpret the films. So it's always um a good thing to keep an open mind and uh, yeah, try to see yeah. people as complex. Exactly, and I think it's important in those reassessment not to reduce people to you know whatever is the last thing that they do. It's important not to let uh, the the bad things that they did negate all the positive things, and also not to let the positive things excuse the bad things that they uh, they might have done. We should be able to walk and chew gum at the same time, to use a, a common phrase. Yeah, yeah. Two two things can equally be true at the same time. Yeah, and, and mo- morality and talent don't often go. They don't often coincide. <laughs> Yeah, in in the future, um, like after all these scandals, there will probably be different approaches to how actors and directors worked, and that will be one positive that can come out of this. Yeah, that that's right. So so I was yeah I I absolutely agree. I think I think uh, we of course he's dead now, so there's nothing that can be. But I, I do believe that there is more to be gained from uh from taking these events and and making changes forward instead of try to think in punitive terms on how do we punish. Uh, the the existing people who have committed wrongdoings, although they certainly should, you know, legally speaking, they should be uh, tried and and you know, uh, uh, you know, receive the the full uh, consequences of the law that they each of them deserve. But I think that's only a minor part of this. It's I think it's far more important to to take all of these that have happened and kind of enact changes moving forward so that we ensure they. There is a, a system there to maybe uh, uh, reduce the likelihood that these happen again. Absolutely. Okay, and that's uh, that's all I had to say about Kim Kiduk's death. I don't know if you had anything else to add. Uh, no, I uh, I think that's effectively summed up uh, everything that could be said um, without actually going into <laughs> an analysis of any films. No, and we'll definitely do that at some point in, in a future episode or a future season of Heroic Purgatory. Like I said, he's one of my favorite filmmakers, and uh, there's definitely not uh, he's not gonna he's he's gonna be uh, his films are gonna be analyzed uh, here. Uh, but uh, you know that was the news that uh, for him that he died, and um, uh, however he's received in the future, he's 
acts, you know, however his act his uh, acts are judged. I think uh, just a quote. I think he was once gave an interview about the animal cruelty uh, in his films, and a few of his films have quite severe animal cruelty. And he did say that uh, I I do use animal cruelty, and I know that I will be judged in the next life for it. And I'm sure that probably whatever his belief were about the next life, I'm sure he will be judged for a lot more than his animal cruelty. Hmm, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, another piece of news that I had, and this is, pertains to the US, I read somewhere, and I'm gonna, I don't remember the link, but I'm going to try to find it, is that the Kiyoshi Kurosawa film, Wife of the Spy, is going to, receive a re- is going to be released. Yep. I, I, in the US, I don't know if that's a theatrical or if that's, you know, in the sort of a digital cinema format, but I'm going to try to find that article that I read it and I'm going to post the link, but it's something to look out for. Uh, you said you you still haven't seen this film, right? No, it uh, came out at the Venice Film Festival earlier this, this yes. year and I've only been able to um, read reviews of it, but uh, all reviews point to a really good film. Yeah, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to see what format and if it's not physical, which I don't think you will be, if it's in some sort of digital format, I'm going to definitely try to, to get my hands on it. Okay. Yeah, me too. Are there any other news that uh, you would like to add to that? Uh, I can't think of any at the moment. All right. Uh, so that was, uh, that was our new segment of the episode. Now we're going to get into the main part, and that is listing uh, our favorite or, you know, a list of recommended. I don't know if, if all of them would be favorites. But a list of recommended Christmas films that are either, uh, you know, appropriate to watch around Christmas or they are set on Christmas or they, they have something to do with Christmas in general. And we're going to maybe have, uh, 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 we're going to talk about them just in a, in, a, uh, in a reduced capacity because there's a lot of films to get through. So um, uh, uh, let's start with how did, you, how, how did you approach making this list, Jason? Did you just like, was it easy for you? Did you have the like a, a like a a list of christmas movies in your mind or did you have to like look through it and and try to really uh search through your uh your um your mind to find something uh i gave myself a simple criteria which was uh films either set on christmas um or set during the christmas period um um or films that i always watch on christmas and there are a lot to choose from if uh, I take both uh, criteria into account. So uh, things that I have on in the background because they're always uh, broadcast around Christmas time, and also like DVDs that I um, like have a special place in my heart uh, that I uh, I watched um, over the Christmas period, the New Year period, and. Um, it was hard um, creating a list because there are so many good Christmas films. Uh, there, there's a lot of uh, like it's a, a massive genre, and um, I've probably picked some of the highlights that most um, people uh, who enjoy American films from say uh, the 80s, the 90s, um, and some of the classics, as well as some. Um, titles that are out from left field some japanese titles that will surprise people yeah and that's not interesting because i think one or two of them i have not seen so will be i'll be interesting to hear your opinion and and why it is that you recommend them okay and uh what criteria did you have 
so for me, it was a little bit harder because normally Christmas time for me is not something that I deeply associate with films. Um, I don't have uh, like a, a, a list of obvious Christmas films. So the criteria for me was, I think, a little bit looser. I just listed things that I, for one reason or another, I associate uh, with Christmas. And uh, some of the reasons are more solid than others for this film, as I'll, as I'll point out. Uh, but yeah, it was it was harder for me to come up with this list. Uh, there's only one film that I watch every Christmas, and I'll, that'll be the first one that I'll mention. <laughs> and then the rest, I kind of had to rack my brain a, a little bit to, to find them. Like a lot of these films that even the ones that are explicitly about Christmas, I have not seen on or around Christmas. Uh, although I might after this uh, recording just to, to kind of stick to my principles. We'll see. Okay. Okay. So so now we'll we'll go through the list one by one, and we'll talk a little bit about them. Nothing nothing too too long and too uh, uh, to drag it out, but just to give you know a reason of why it is that we recommend this and why it is that we associate this film with Christmas. So why don't you give us the first one? And and just to clarify, at least for me, uh, these are not ranked in any particular order of preference. These are just seven or eight uh, Christmas films and uh, randomly thrown out there. So uh, at least for me, the one that I'm going to mention first. On the one that I want to mention last, are not necessarily in order of preference; they're just in in random order. Yes, it's the same for me. And um, the ones I'm going to list first are like sort of things I have on in the background, um, ones that I've grown up um, watching and sort of uh, appreciating. Um, I may not pay full attention to them all the time, but if they're on television, I'll just have them on in the background. And um, they like uh, titles like Scrooged with Bill Murray. Um, trading places with Dan Aykroyd, Eddie Murphy, and uh, 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 Jamie Lee Curtis. Uh, Gremlins and The Nightmare Before Christmas. So, like a really heavy American contingent there. Uh, uh, Gremlins and The Nightmare Before Christmas. Uh, like they're set on Christmas. Like Christmas is a big theme for The Nightmare Before Christmas, and um, this like. To me, they represent something that Hollywood doesn't do so much these days. It's like really gothic, even horrific types of movies set on Christmas. Yeah, Gremlins is like, like it starts off innocently enough with an inventor going to Chinatown and getting this strange creature, and, and it uh, sort of evolves into this brutal, like even horrific sort of serial killer type of movie where you've got these horrible creatures stalking the town and the nightmare before christmas is a perfect sort of um, amalgamation of gothic horror and uh christmas time um and it's hard to imagine hollywood making a big stop motion musical like that nowadays yeah i think i think the a nightmare before christmas and i i, I re-watched that recently uh, I haven't seen Gremlins in a while, but you know, I I I remember it. Is is probably my favorite movie that is explicitly about Christmas. Um, I I I have a it's kind of it's 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 a great film, and it's also even though it's not directed by Tim Burton, he has a he he definitely at least from what I've read, he had a he had a big hand in its in its making. Um, it's it's kind of a. <laughs> a sad a reminder of what Tim Burton used to be and what he became uh, later on. But I agree with you. It is, uh, it is not only hard 
it's hard that he was even made in the first first place. It's 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 incredibly uh, impressive at how iman- imaginative imaginative the film is, and even you know how much it 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 achieves with its simplicity. Indeed, I like the the different models are just so full of character, and I love uh, and the voice acting matches perfectly. So it's enough to sweep you away into this um, world where you've got all these like stereotypical images of Christmas and Halloween. Yeah. And it's, you get, you get two for one. It's a Halloween and a Christmas movie. Yeah. And it's about a guy trying to discover his true character. So it's brilliant yeah, it's, character it's, development. It's family friendly in a sense, but it's also, it satisfies like a, a more wacky part of like a, you what you might expect in a in a it has like a darker component to it that it's not it's not so dark that it it, it takes away its family friendliness but it's it just satisfies that edge so well yep there's a lot of peril and um some dismemberment <laughs> uh, yeah and that that scene where he sings in front of the big moon that's like i, I rewatch that scene periodically because it's just so beautiful yeah like and these Although these are fantastical creatures, um, like they're very much human as well. You can understand them. Yeah, and uh, yeah, that's all I've got to say about it. Like this is the sort of thing I would have on in the background because it's usually broadcast like every year. Yeah, I, I, I don't. Wa- that's another thing that maybe why made the compilation of this list so hard. But I don't watch that much TV as in traditional broadcast television that I can have it on and and see what's on. So maybe. Maybe that's uh, so. I don't know if this even plays in the U.S. I would imagine it does, and I I don't know what channel you would find this film. I think it's easier to catch films like uh, as national events in the U.K. because we've got like uh, although we've got hundreds of um, different channels, like the BBC and Channel Four tend to be the ones people gravitate to that do screen these films, and um, the BBC and Channel Four. Uh, offer greater accessibility to audiences because all you have to do is just pay a license fee. You don't need to pay for a cable subscription or anything like that. Yeah, that's that's great. Yeah, I mean the BBC has some great programming and has had over the years. Mm, yeah, and um, like their online component, uh, they've got quite a good selection of films. Um. In the past, they used to show lots of foreign films, but uh, recently it's mostly American films, and uh, they've got a lot of classics, one of which I mentioned earlier. Um, I'll probably mention it again later on in this discussion. Okay. Uh, so the first film in my list is the only one that I actually do watch almost every Christmas. It's, it's, it's uh, every Christmas day. Uh, and it's not one film, it's a trilogy, and that is the Lord of the Rings trilogy. And... Um, uh, my, my my connection to Christmas is that I watch I watch it every Christmas a Christmas Day most of the time and I watch the extended editions of all the films so that is pretty much takes the whole day, um, and uh, so that is my personal connection with, with with Christmas even though there's no explicit connection with it in the story I know that a lot of people do have that tradition uh, a lot of people that I know anyway that I do watch either all the entire trilogy or at least one or two films around Christmas, but I also, I'm pretty sure that the original films did come out on uh, Christmas Day in their respective years. Okay. At least in the US. Yeah, they, I think they all came out every 2001, 2002, and 2003, either on Christmas Eve or Christmas Day. 
somewhere around there. Um, so, so, you know, it's not an explicitly a Christmas film, but it is a Christmas film for me, and it is a Christmas film in that sense. And I just, I don't know, I mean, uh, people, people, uh, a lot of people love this trilogy, and a lot of people like to hate on it, but, but whatever you think, and it does have, have, has, it does have a few flaws, I just do think that it is an, an, an amazing achievement of filmmaking by uh, Peter Jackson, and it's amazing just to, to, to see him develop as a filmmaker and see what he came from and then kind of like tackle on this trilogy that it looks like you wouldn't tell from his previous films, but it, when you see this one, it looks like it was, it was the, the, the project that he was born to undertake. Yeah, he started out with splatter films like Bad Taste and yeah, Meet the now he's doing CGI epics. <laughs> yeah. And that's another thing about this film, like by today, there, I mean, there's obviously, this is a spoiling trilogy, 12 hours plus, and it has a lot of CGI, but by today's standards, it doesn't have that much CGI. It, it's, it mostly relies on makeup and, and like really clever location scouting. Yeah, the fantastic landscape of New Zealand. Yeah. And the CGI is 20 years old, but it holds up incredibly well. Um, what I enjoy about the CGI in The Lord of the Rings is it's not overwhelming like you find with a lot of films. Absolutely. Like you, like you would later do in The Hobbit. Yeah. Like, <laughs> he comes from practical effects, and you still get a sense that practical effects are heavily involved in Lord of the Rings. Yeah, I wonder if it's like The Lord of the Rings drained him so much that he went, after this, he went to make uh, King Kong. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, I enjoyed the film, don't get me wrong, but it is a laughable film in many ways. Uh, and, you know, I, I haven't seen The Lovely Bones, but I just, it seems to me that he just, after he did The Love of the Rings, he just kind of, that drained the talent out of him. And he just, he's kind of been riding on the same, on the coattails of that ever since, I think. Did he do something like three installments of The Hobbit? Yeah, he did three. Yeah, it's like, um, and he's also since then he's also done a documentary. They shall never grow old, I believe. Where oh, he... that, that was actually well, that was actually pretty good. I I saw that. I forgot about that. Yeah, that was that was a very interesting. I, I saw it in three D. Uh, and full disclosure, that was my first and only three D film that I've seen. Um, <laughs> okay, I mostly because I'm cheap and I I don't want to pay the extra money for a, for for a three D film, and I I I never saw the appeal. Uh, and you know, as far as 3D effects, that was pretty mild. But it's it's uh, he did some great great work on that. Like the uh, the footage of World War One soldiers is phenomenal. Yeah. So I I take it um, like James Cameron's next five installments of the Avatar series, uh, not on your watch list. Well, I mean, I'm probably gonna watch. Well, if he ever makes them. But uh, I'm I'm gonna watch them in uh, in regular. I saw Avatar in regular uh, 2D. Uh, like like I might I might watch it in 3D. I'm I, I, I'm not against it. it. Like I said, it's mostly because I don't want to pay the extra ten dollars for a 3D ticket. Uh, yeah, I I think a, a lot of the problems with uh, 3D films uh, it's like say uh, for example with Alice in Wonderland by Tim Burton. Uh, it wasn't filmed in 3D to begin with. It was added. As a component later on, wasn't it? I, I don't know, honestly. Okay, well, uh, from what I understand, and while the like James Cameron's projects, um, like uh, Avatar and there's like a, a deep sea one, those have been specifically filmed in 3D. He's like 
research new technology to pull this off. And I, I did watch the 3D avatar in a cinema and I was really blown away. Okay. Uh, uh, then I, 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 I might watch it. Like I, I understand the, the technology was remarkable for Avatar. Uh, but I just, I don't know. I didn't, uh, at the time, at least, I didn't think it's worth it. I might, I might uh, reevaluate that opinion when the next Avatar films come out. So, yeah, I think we've got quite a few to go through. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, considering his age and how slow he's been going, I, you know, if I was a betting man, I would probably bet that we're not going to see all five of them. <laughs> but who knows? One can only wait and see. Yeah. All right, so why don't you go uh, down on your list? What's next for you? So the next one I have is a film by Sion Sonu called Love and Peace. Which I have not seen, so I'm going to rely on you to, to convince me that it is worth checking out. Okay, so Love and Peace uh, is a film that came out in 2015-16, but it's actually based on a script he wrote like decades earlier. And it's a mashup of genres, uh, like a musical, a kaiju ega, and uh, a love story. And uh, it, like Sean Sono is like famous for having this operatic style. And with his horror films, it can get a bit tiresome because it feels like you're being shouted at uh, and shown horrific images quite a lot. Whereas it, um, with Love and Peace, there's a fun tone. It's ambitious. Um, it's got lots of practical effects, uh, full body suits uh, for like some of the monsters, marionettes. Um, it's very colorful, playful. And so having like his style, which is cranked up to 11 at all times, uh, for most of his projects at least, having that style here is perfect. And you've got a character who's who has a, a rags to riches story. His name's Ryo. And um, like he's painfully shy guy, wanted to be a rock and roller, didn't have the confidence to do it, quit after three shows where nobody came to watch him. Uh, he's in love. Uh, so at the beginning, sort of uh, unrequited love with uh, a fellow office worker, Yuko Tarashima. And he uh, he's bullied in the workplace. He's got self-confidence issues. Uh, like the way Sono films it, he puts you right in his headspace, right in Ryo's headspace. Where like shame and um, self hatred just blossom from uh, every every angle, and Hiroki Hasegawa's performance as Ryo is brilliant. Like he his body language is so tight and curls and controls, and like he just wreaks embarrassment and fear. And he encounters uh, a guy selling turtles on a rooftop while he's having like a lunch alone, a miserable lunch alone. And this turtle he names Picadon becomes his best friend. Uh, unfortunately, uh, due to a series of events, uh, he ends up getting flushed down the toilet. And Picadon encounters a man who could be Santa uh, and ingests uh, like uh, a magic tablet, which can allow him to grant wishes, which is where the film really spirals out of control and becomes like a kaiju eager rock musical. I, I, Maybe I've given too much away, but it's a lot of fun. I don't know if I've convinced anybody, but so so uh, what's what's the relationship to Christmas? So it's set over the Christmas period. Okay, and uh, Picadon the turtle encounters uh, a guy in sewers who's mending toys. Could be Santa. Um, 
spoiler alert. Uh, turns out it is Santa. <laughs> and I have to say the poster looks Christmassy. Has yeah. that has that feeling about it? Well, it's, it's the bright colors and yeah, you've got all the props for Christmas. And um, yeah, that that's true. It has that 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 uh, you know atmosphere about it. The colorful, the stars, the 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 shine, and all that. Yeah, and it and it becomes like in Christmas. This it's less about religion and more about like couples dating or kids getting toys. And it's got like the romance between uh, Ryo and Yuko. Um, and it's got like uh, comments on. Um, uh, uh, consumerism, as uh, you've got all these toys have been discarded by people who are getting a second chance, and um, Ryo himself is searching for a second chance in life. And I actually find like, like being reborn or having a second chance in life is a theme that comes up in a lot of uh, Christmas films. Actually, absolutely. So yeah, uh, have I have I convinced you, or is that too much of a word salad? <laughs> Well, uh, you you did convince me when you said that uh, he's not. Uh, this film is not Sono turned up to eleven because that's my problem with some of his later films. Uh, he's kind of fallen uh, so he's relying so much on his trademark style that sometimes movies have no substance except that just his personal touch, which can be a bit too much sometimes. I, yeah, I think that's definitely the case with his later titles. Like Forest of Love was definitely a retread of things like Cold Fish, Suicide Club, and um, uh, it just like it felt belaboured, and he was treading water. Yeah, it feels like, and, and you know, I mean, this is purely speculation on my part, but it does feel like he's gotten to the point where there's nobody there to edit him. Maybe. It, 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 I mean, it has the same effect. I think, um, especially with regards to Forest of Love, he was given a budget by Netflix because he's got the international auteur status. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. He can uh, go uh, to whatever lengths he wants to. Uh, he reigns it back in with films like The Whispering Star, which is a black and white kind of minimalist. Um, it's very, it's, it's a silent film. Uh, oh, I see. So, if you don't like that sort of uh, like aggressive style of Sono, the Whispering Star might be interesting. But Love and Peace, it has to be noted, was based on a script that he wrote, written like in the early nineties, I think. So before he became um, sort of well known as uh, director of Suicide Club. That that's true, and and you know to. To be, you know, to again try to get in his head a little bit. I don't think Sono was ever a, a director or a writer, for that matter, who, who would allow himself to be edited by a studio or whoever else. But you know, and like that's common in a lot of auteurs, uh, or at least directors that are perceived as auteurs. But you know, there's still a chance that someone would evaluate his work and give suggestion, and he would take them. Whereas <laughs> In his later work, it sounds like it's just he's just given free reign, and he's not he's not in the mood to listen to any to what anyone else might have to say about uh, about his films. And and you know, and I don't necessarily mind his aggressiveness. Like for example, in in a film like Noriko's Dinner Table or um, uh, the Four Hour One that he did, um, 
Uh, love exposure. Love exposure. I mean, those are very where he kind of like amps up his style to to eleven, as you mentioned. But I do think that that's appropriate for those films. Uh, whereas for his later films, it's either not appropriate or it's just a retreading, as you mentioned in the case of the Force of Love, of just familiar territory. Yeah, he he's definitely his own man, and I think we should be thankful, um, especially like. He he has like the bravery to go to different places, and his next film is *Prisoners of the Ghostland* with Nicolas Cage. And um, some images were released yesterday, so I'm looking forward to seeing how um, Sono's style and Nicolas Cage's acting meld together. It might it might just break the screen <laughs> or break the cameras. Absolutely, I'm definitely going to be there day one at the cinema. Yeah, well, hopefully it does get a cinema release and not not a uh, not a video release, but we'll see how it goes. I yeah, we could be banking on sort of Nicolas Cage's cachet, cultural cachet, to get at the very least a limited theatrical run. Yeah, yeah, I mean that's definitely possible. All right, uh, so my the next one that I have is a a, a film that is maybe more uh, Christmassy than my previous one. And that is the uh, European film Joyeux Noël, uh, which literally translates from French as Merry Christmas. And it is, I don't remember exactly the countries, but it's a, comp- it's a co-pro- co-production between various countries, uh, uh, French, British, and German. I don't know if you've seen the film. Um, I have not seen the film, but I, I know um, what it is and sort of the incident that it, um, it recreates. Yes. So just to give a very quick summary for our, our, uh, our audience, it is a film about uh, the front line uh, in the trenches of World War I, where the French and the, the British are fighting with the Germans. And uh, one day, right before Christmas, they agree to a ceasefire just so they can, each of them uh, can celebrate Christmas in peace. And during that day, uh, that day they kind of manage to mingle and get to know each other. And then after that, they kind of find it very hard to go back to fighting. So they kind of, they have to figure out what to do. And they're eventually, uh, I mean, it's an old movie, so I'm not, I'm not too worried about spoiling it. Uh, eventually, uh, they're all relocated by the respective armies to, uh, uh, to fight in a different part. So they're not, they're not afraid to kill the enemy. Uh, I mean, it's a, it's a very moving film. It stars a few, uh, a few people that even a, a Western audience might be familiar with. It's uh uh, Daniel uh, D- Diane Kruger, who was in famously in um, Inglorious uh, in, Inglorious Bastards by Tarantino. Yeah, it's uh, Daniel Bruhl, who is probably the most famous German actor that I know. Uh, he was uh, in uh, one of the Avenger films. He was the bad guy. Oh no, he was in the not the Avenger, uh, the Civil War film. Hey, Captain America. Civil War. Yeah, he was the bad guy in that one. Okay. Uh, Daniel Brew, but he's a. Re- I mean, if you if you Google, he's a he has a recognizable face. I don't know what else he might have been of that English speaking audience would know him from. The, he was the, in the Born Ultimatum. Hmm. Uh, what else? Yeah. Anyway, I mean, it's he's a, a yeah. He's Civil War, the Born Ultimatum. Uh, uh, oh, he was also in Inglorious Bastards too. Yeah. He oh. is the young uh, the young German soldier who who they make a movie about. Hmm. Okay. And uh, there is a uh, it's uh, Ben O'Furman, another uh, another kind of famous German actor. My uh, uh, fun fact: my 
my first uh, film of his that I watched was uh, The Ring of the Nibelungs, which was a 2004 German film, an, ad- an ad- adaptation of the, of the legend of The Ring of the Nibelung, which is where the myth, the mythology in which The Lord of the Rings is based. Okay. Was that turned into an opera by Wagner? Well, that that was yeah. So th- that's originally it's a it's a legend is a is an epic uh, epic story that has been adapted in multiple times in multiple uh, multiple formats, and one of them was an opera by a four part opera by Wagner. Okay. Yeah, and it was a silent, a famous silent film with Siegfried. Uh, Siegfried is the main character, and he does play Siegfried in that film. Uh, and uh, it's it's a German film, but it's in English, uh, and. And it was made purely to capitalize on the, on the success of the Lord of the Rings trilogy that had just come out the year before. Mm. So it, it, like it, it kind of features the same aesthetic, although even though it was just made for that reason, it's actually, uh, it's actually a good film. And, and uh, it's directed by Yuli uh, Edel, who's a relatively well-known German director. Mm. Okay, so anyway, b- back to Joe Noel. It's, it's a, uh, you know, it's, it's a very different it's a very unusual war film in that it takes place in the front lines but there's very little fighting in it and it's just a uh just a, i think you know again whether or not you're religious or we're not you're not religious like i mean the, the, there's one thing that sort of the christmas is in common is that it's a it's a time of celebration it's a time of peace and i feel like this movie does kind of cap uh, literally captures that that spirit where you know the the soldiers literally uh, uh, choose to ceasefire just to honor the holiday, but then they get to know each other and they realize that they just like the fact the fact of them killing themselves does not make much sense. And it is something that truly happened. So it's not it's not just a fabrication uh, uh, for the purpose of the movie. Although um, you know who knows how much the film changed from real life. I don't really know what the true stories were because this happened in multiple parts of the front. It wasn't just one incident. Uh, but uh, but it's also, I, I find it very interesting that something, like you can only do this kind of plot in, or in set in World War I. You cannot do it in World War II because, you know, World War I was a much, much more complicated war in, rather than uh, World War II, which was just an evil guy who wanted to take over the world. Hmm. So I, I I like I'm always I love movies about World War One and this one is even it takes uh, uh, has a special place in there because it's just it's so unique and it's just so um, um, depicts such an interesting event that a lot of people are not even aware of. Yeah, it's counter to the images of like the hell of the trenches. Exactly, which World War One was indeed hell. It's it's the first. Uh, well, not was it? It was the first major war that used trench warfare. I think. I, I, I think the was it the American Civil War was like the first yeah, modern the first war? one, but in Europe, uh, might have been the first one that did. It was like the most heavily mechanized war up until that point. Yeah, like that. Again, you know, it's a, it's a contrast to the hell of the trenches, and it shows that I guess it shows that people have more in common than uh, like war would allow us to think. Absolutely, which is uh, perfect for the Christmas period. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. I think this is a, like maybe the. It's not my favorite film in the list, but it's maybe the most Christmas thing on my list. The most faithful, uh, uh, the, the the most the film that I can mostly and 
like confidently call a true Christmas film. Right. So uh, I guess I should go on to my next one, and um, that's Spirited Away by Hayao Miyazaki. Okay. So, so make the case why this is a Christmas film, because I love this film, but I, I sort of <laughs> I had to I had to back back up a little bit and think about it. So uh, my criteria is that it's a film that I always watch over the Christmas period, but it's also one that allows second chances. Like the main character, Chihiro, is sort of reborn at the end. And I, I did find some parallels for another film that you watched, which uh, when you mention it later, um, I'll, I'll chime in. Um, okay. But essentially, Spirited Away is like the Oscar-winning film that Studio Ghibli made. Um, and it's about a 10-year-old girl named Chihiro, uh, who, along with her parents, gets stuck in a uh, supernatural onsen. So it's like a bathhouse. Uh, they, they initially think it's a theme park, but it turns out to be like an onsen. Uh, and um, she has to go on a journey of sort of like uh, self-discovery and overcoming uh, fear and sort of negative personality traits to rescue her parents who have been turned into pigs. And along the way, she meets various fantastical creatures. And um, I'd seen this... Uh, on its uh, initial UK theatrical release, it was in a packed cinema, and um, it's like one of those times where a film got a standing ovation, even though the director or none, you know none of the cast were present. And uh, it's one I've uh, every chance I've got to watch it on a big screen, I've taken it. So I've watched it quite a few times in the cinema, and also when it's usually broadcast in the UK during the summer and on, uh, during the winter, uh, specifically Christmas. And so I have it on, um, and uh, I own it on uh, DVD. So the main draw for me is, uh, as I mentioned earlier, Chihiro's growth as a character, where you see all of her negative traits at first. She's spoilt. Um, she's uh, a little cowardly, um, and she's a little selfish, and she has to mature and become much more worldly and um, through pushing herself to overcome various challenges. And I think it's one, like, its, it's message is timeless, uh, like that urging people to sort of grow as individuals, as well as having that wonderful, fantastical element to it. Yeah, and I think uh, just like I mentioned for your other film, uh, Love and Peace, that the poster looks very Christmas. I would say that the visual aesthetic of this film also has a very, uh, I mean, it's 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 somewhat intangible, but it has a very Christmassy vibe. Um, although uh, you could argue that about a lot of Miyazaki films. Yeah, it's like like the warmth of the scenery and the lanterns, especially during the nighttime, and like um, the festival. Uh, atmosphere of the onsen itself does invite sort of um, uh, yeah, comparisons to Christmas, even though it seems to be set like during the like summer. And in uh, and it also very explicitly utilizes ideas from the Shinto beliefs of Miyazaki. Yeah, this like this onsen that Chihiro gets trapped in is where eight million spirits from across the lands. Uh, go to relax and you get an idea of like how um spirits um uh or how natural 
uh, like parts of the natural landscape can be given spiritual aspects. Um, so Haku, uh, oh, some of the some of the some of the characters she meets end up being like uh, like gods of uh, rivers or mountains or or the sea and so forth. So if you like, if you know, uh, if you don't know too much about Shintoism, you can learn about how it's applied to the natural landscape. Yeah, but I do agree with you that if you, for example, don't know anything about Shintoism, you could perhaps interpret it as a, as loosely like as a, a Christmas, a Christmas movie, because it does have themes of sacrifice. Uh, like that's that's a big thing uh, in the film. Yeah, Chihiro has to be brave enough to risk sacrifice and uh, like other characters as well, and that's that's the only reason they grow and. Um, to, it you you get really fulfilling character development through seeing people risk it all and come out on top at the end. Uh, would you say this is your uh, favorite Miyazaki film? Yeah, like top five Studio Ghibli for me is probably like uh, Spirited Away, Princess Mononoke, Whisper of the Heart, uh, and uh, Kiki's Delivery Service, and uh, which I haven't seen. Mm, that's good. That's I another. Is. Like, like you could be a fifty-year-old guy and still get a lot from seeing like, a, a, like, the main character Kiki, a teenage girl, sort of challenging life and uh, wrestling with her self-doubt and overcoming it. And um, it's like all of these films are wonderful. And also Castle Cagliostro, which isn't uh, a Ghibli film, but yeah, I think Spirited Away is my favorite. Okay. Oh, that's great. So yeah, uh, what do you think of it? Oh, I I, I love it. It's not I I wouldn't say Spirit Away is my top one, but it might be my second or third of Miyazaki's. I'm not. I generally don't. Uh, a lot of people when they talk about uh, Miyazaki's film, they kind of say Studio Ghibli, but I kind of uh, I don't like to to lump him together because Studio Ghibli is mostly Miyazaki and Takahata, and I find them very very different from each other. So I'd like to just specifically either consider Miyazaki films or Takahata's films, which I have seen uh, fewer. So that's so I I don't want to I don't want to make a comment on in his filmography. But for um, for Miyazaki, I definitely um, uh, Spirit Away is is uh, maybe my second or my third. I would, top one is come kind of between either Nausicaa or Howl's Moving Castle, and I know Howl's Moving Castle is a little bit. Um, uh, it's maybe one of his well i mean it's well received but i think um, has probably drawn the most criticism and i i agree with it but it's just a guilty pleasure i just love it so much mm. uh, that's another one i saw in the cinema and um yeah I, I enjoy it it's i wouldn't necessarily say it's top five miyazaki but it's definitely good a, a, a lot of people feel like that way they i mean they definitely enjoy it and they definitely they, they it's not trash but it's definitely not on the top a, a lot of people's top uh, Miyazaki films but I don't know what it is about it that I I, I like the the sort of the, the fairy tale aesthetic of it uh, it's 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 maybe it's because it's maybe one of the most western of his films compared to everything else that he's done hmm. Just, uh, yeah. the aesthetic he has, it's like uh, Alsace-Lorraine type of setting yeah and it, it is based on a on a book right um, Diane Wynne Jones and I think something like that yeah yeah it's initially like a sort of British setting in the novel but uh, yeah totally different in the film but it's it's still like a rich experience and uh, an, an entertaining story 
Yes. All right. Uh, so, so for my next one, and this one is uh, one that I kind of, uh, I struggled to make connection, but I did want to include a noir film in this. And when you, on the surface, it's very hard to make the case that noir films are appropriate on Christmas. And, and I would agree with that. But the only reason why I personally associate noir films with Christmas is that I was introduced to a lot of noir films during one in one Christmas holiday when I was back from school. Uh, like I, I hadn't seen, like it was, it was either my first or second year of university. I don't remember exactly. And, you know, I was home for Christmas vacation and I just, you know, I, I thought, okay, this is finally the time that I'm going to introduce myself to, to film noir. So I just lined up a lot of noir films and I just started watching them in a row. So that's pretty much what I did all that Christmas during that Christmas vacation. So that's why I personally associate noir with, um, with Christmas. So I had to pick up some, to had to pick something appropriate. Uh, and I remember this one film that is specifically a noir film about Christmas, and it's called Christmas Holiday. Mm. Uh, and it's about a a during it's set during World War II when a soldier, uh, right after he comes out of the academy or something like that, an officer, he goes back. He's traveling to San Francisco to meet his girl, girl girlfriend, who apparently has married someone else, uh, and he just found out about it. But then he's due to bad weather, his plane is stuck in New Orleans. And there he befriends a, a, a disgraced nightclub singer, sort of the femme, femme fatale character, who tells her the story of how her husband became a murderer. And it's, I rewatched it, and it's not as good. It's not as great as I remember it was, but it's still interesting in many respects. It's, it's, it's uh, the, the, the noir atmosphere is fairly conventional, but it features a nonlinear storytelling, which for the time was relatively uh, new and unusual. And I think it does that uh, very well. Um, however, the film in itself is so-so, so that's why I'm going to pair this and make it a double feature. Uh, and this was just uh, something that I came up with this morning and, uh, to make a double feature of Christmas Holiday and Night of the Hunter. Ah, okay. Yeah. So Night of the Hunter is, is maybe a little bit more, more popular. Is the only film that Charles Lofton directed about a... Uh, about a... What's the... About a... a a con man or someone who looking to ahead, get sir. his hands on a fortune, isn't he? A fortune that that a a a, a family man, a father buried right before he went to jail, and essentially that's his jail partner who found out about it, uh, and then returns home, uh, tricks the mother into marrying him in uh, hopes of finding out where the uh, where the treasure is. When he, she doesn't reveal, he kills her, and then he chases the children. Yeah, that, that's a really great atmospheric film. Yes, and it, it of course, the relationship to, to Christmas is that it ends with a Christmas celebration in the very end after the children have escaped uh, from the bad guy with uh, the character played by Lillian Gish, of all people. Mm. Uh, and uh, they celebrate Christmas together, but it's also, the uh, like I mentioned a few times, but it has that visual aesthetic that it just that fairy tale like feeling that is just very very Christmassy, yeah. Uh, so yeah, I would I would recommend both of these films. So Christmas Holiday for a more darker and an interesting take on noir that it also happens to be about around to take place around Christmas, and then uh, wash that out with Night of the Hunter, uh, that is a, a more fairy tale, more gothic like, like inspired by the the German expressionism movement, and kind of like like end the night with with Night of the Hunter. Okay, so uh, the next film on my list is uh, 
It's a Wonderful Life. Okay. By, uh, so this Cap- one is the, the classic. This one is the, the, the traditional Christmas film. Yeah, it's the one that's put on television all the time. And it was on television earlier today, actually. <laughs> um, and it's the James Stewart movie. And it's one that's worth watching every Christmas, just to remind you, like, the most important gift you're given is life. Yes, yeah, it's the second collaboration between uh, Stewart and uh, Frank Capra. Yeah, and um, it's it's a story that's set over the decades as you see uh, James Stewart's character grow, uh, his life in this small town in America, which he's eager to get out. He plays George Bailey, uh, the son of a guy who runs a bank, a small bank in a town, which everybody comes to rely on. Uh, the bank is constantly under threat from uh, a money man, an industrialist who's always trying to take it over. And um, so George Bailey ends up, like, despite having dreams of going out into the world, going to college, traveling around um, different countries, he ends up stuck in his hometown and having to take responsibility for the bank. And due to a series of events, he's brought to the point of suicide and um it's, it gets really 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 dark like you the sense of pressure and hopelessness is very visceral and this is partly down to a script which has like brilliant vignettes where you can understand like his place in the town um the uh, opposition he faces from the industrialist and um the high stakes uh of like uh, being in that industry and um and also how important his family and friends are to him and it has a brilliant christmas message where um so god intervenes and gives him uh, a glimpse of life without him in the town and yeah uh again it's like a, a rebirth moment. Yeah, and I you did mention the darkness, and I did, you know, well, the first time I watched it, which was a few years ago, uh, I was taken aback by how dark this film gets at some point. Of course, it you know, eventually everything ends well, spoiler alert there, but um, but it does, you know, it, do, it does go to a place that, you know, for perhaps the most famous Christmas uh, film of all time, and even if you haven't seen this film, you're familiar of its reputation. And you know its status as a Christmas film. It's it it is unexpected at that point. Yeah, it's, I was uh, rewatching it earlier today because it's on television, and like the scene where like he's had the worst news possible about his job, and he's James Stewart is what is wandering around as as his character. He's wandering around distraught, and he goes home, and like his interaction with his family is like something like. Like nil by mouth, that British, like really grim British movie, <laughs> almost to that level of like yeah, disharmony, like family horror. Um, and uh, it goes even further with uh, like death and addiction and so forth. Yeah. Uh, do you know what uh, what film would make an excellent double feature to this one that is surprisingly similar but much darker? Oh, uh, I know. What the, is it? Ma- the, Magni- the Magnificent Umbersons by Orson Welles. Oh, okay. 
Yeah, I, that's one I haven't watched. Okay, it has a a a a. a I mean, it's a it's a different plot, so I shouldn't say it's the same plot, but it has a a lot of plot points that are parallel to the to the life of uh, the main character in um, in uh, It's a Wonderful Life. It's a it's a rich industrialist who eventually loses all his wealth, uh, and eventually slowly loses his family as well. Uh, in a in a town, essentially, the, main, the name of the main guy is Amberson. And um, and but uh, Orson Welles' ending is of much darker. And so imagine if it's it's equivalent to imagine uh, it's a wonderful life. If in the end, just uh, what's uh, Bailey just died alone and poor in a ditch. <laughs> oh dear, <laughs> that sounds really grim. However, yes. Uh, however, the uh, after he finished it and after he finished editing it, uh, Welles was sent to Mexico to research a documentary, and that's when the studio took Wells's film away from him and tacked on a happy ending at the end. And it's it's so obvious that when you watch uh when you watch um uh when you watch the film, it's clearly that the ending does not looks completely different from the rest of the film. It's it's so obviously tacked on. And I think that caused Wells to just never work with that production company again. I don't remember which one it was. Uh but he they essentially took the film away from him. Uh, so it, the film, as it stands, um, it has a happy ending, but it is obviously tacked on. And scholars have debated for a while what exactly was, uh, what exactly would have been um, uh, Wells's true ending. He like rarely spoke about it later in his life. This was um, made before Citizen Kane, right? No, it was made after Citizen. It was the after film that he made right after Citizen Kane, I think. Okay, so was it, like Citizen Kane was an RKO picture. Yeah, so this might have been. Uh, let me check. Uh, this might have also been an RKO. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Yeah, so I'm looking at the Wikipedia. It says Wells lost control uh, to RKO. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Anyway, but yeah, it's I, I to, not to derail it anymore. I think this would be a great companion piece to It's a Wonderful Life. Although I would recommend watching It's a Wonderful Life after, so you don't end on a sad note. Yeah, like It's a Wonderful Life, like. Like the sense of frustration and not being able to get out of a hometown, the sense of despair, everything going wrong, and then the uplift of finding out, like, no man is an island, as the uh, metaphysical poet John Donne wrote. You know, that, and um, uh, like the quote at the end is a timeless one: yeah. um, "No man is a uh, failure who has friends." You know, that's, yeah, yeah, that's beautiful. Yeah, yeah it is. It, it is a beautiful film, and it's a very uh, I mean, there's a reason why it's such a beloved Christmas film. Absolutely. All right. So uh, with my next to- topic, I'm going to uh, uh, unfortunately switch gears completely because my next item on the list is John Carpenter's The Thing. Classic. Uh, yeah, definitely. And it's I don't think it's even set on Christmas, but it's set on the snowy landscape of Antarctica, which is a, a relatively Christmas, uh, Christmassy or Christmas-reminding um, uh, topiary, so or a place. Uh, so <laughs> yeah. that that's that's as as good of an argument as I can make it, because I don't I don't think this film has much else that is Christmassy about it. No, it doesn't have any Cold War paranoia uh, about it as either. Uh, it's based on uh, the short story "Who Goes There," and also by John the- W. C- Campbell. Yeah, and also the um, I can't remember the director's name. Uh, 
but also um, the thing from another planet. Uh, well, the, the Howard Hawks, the thing from another world, yeah, which is Howard also ba- yeah. which is also based on the same novel. Yeah. So yeah. So um, and that one doesn't have too much Cold War paranoia in it either. Uh, yeah, John- I haven't seen the 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 first adaptation. I have to be honest, the one uh, by Howard Hawks. Yeah, it's uh, it's a, a typical sort of B movie affair. Um, not bad physical effects. Basically, a guy uh, in a so does makeup. Yeah, so I, I that's what I understood that the original one was a more um more more of a traditional monster film. And John W. Campbell, the author, was somewhat he was involved in that, but he was somewhat disappointed. With the final product, uh, just to give uh, just a, a quick word about uh, John W. Campbell, he's mostly known as an editor, and in fact, his in if you're if you're in within the science fiction circles, he's perhaps the most fa- famous editor in the genre of science fiction because he's single-handedly considered responsible for the golden age of science fiction. Uh, and then towards the end of his life, he kind of went crazy. He so started believing in 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 the actual things that he was editing in science fiction, like psychics and telekinetics and all that. But uh, but as an editor, he was remarkable. But this he wrote earlier in his career. Uh, he was uh, somewhat of an author, and this was probably the only thing of his that remains uh, memorable, and it's still uh, examined today. Who goes there? And the thing, the John Carpenter thing, has a I think takes a lot more from the novella or the short story than the 1950s version. So you've said you've seen the 90 the 90s the 1950s version, right? Yeah. Uh, and does that does the monster in that have the have uh, 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 is it um, psychic and does it have the ability to transform into other people? It doesn't. No, it's okay. So, yeah, so it's that's in the original based, novel. It's a plant based monster, and um, there's a lot of speculation about how plants communicate with each other. But but it essentially it's a humanoid thing which um, crashes through the sets, uh, gets set on fire occasionally. I see. Yeah, no. So the, I think the carpenters de- definitely went back, at least in the ideas of to the original, uh, the original novel, and uh, it kind of the original novel. The monster does have a, a physical, an original form, so to speak, that they see in the beginning. But it also has the ability to it, it's it can telepathically read the the people, the scientists, but it can also uh, it can also transform into into any one of them. And there's that whole. Uh, paranoia and uh, and uh, distrust of each other in the novel, which I'm guessing, I'm, I'm from what you've said, it's not in the first film, but John Cap- uh, John Carpenter captured captures so well. He gets rid of the monster having a physical form. In, in John Carpenter, it's more of a, a an abstraction in a sense that I don't think uh, uh, I, I watched this a few months ago, uh, so I watched quite recently, but I don't remember if the monster ever takes physical form. I don't think it does. No, it doesn't. It's like it, every time we, uh, the first time we see it, it's uh, in dog. the guise of a dog, and then it's like this uh, sort of uh, goo. Yeah, yeah, this sh- uh, shape shifting um, uh, uh, biomorphous creature, which you don't you don't get a sense of its original form. Yeah, and and I think the one thing that Campbell did in his original idea, his original novel, which was in the in the thirties, was it, it take take uh take a lovecraftian elements and i think lovecraft had had just died around the time that this novel was published i'm not sure he died in the late 30s and this novel was i mean this novella was published in the 30s i'm not i'm not sure about the time there but definitely lovecraft uh, lovecraft's horror was uh 
was was definitely something in the uh, that was very popular among the pulp magazine circles at the time, and Campbell was definitely familiar with that era. And he took those elements and inserted it into a more conventional science fiction alien invasion story. And one thing that that one problem that a lot of filmmakers have when they try to adapt Lovecraft on screen is that there's in many cases the the nature of the Lovecraft's cosmic horror is not very tangible. Is more of an idea. Is more something that the more you understand it, the more it drives you mad. And I think Carpenter, in his adaptation here, doesn't quite go that far, but he definitely does capture that intangibility of of the horror that comes from the monster. It's not it's not a thing with claws that can eat you. Is is more of like an idea that exists in your mind that that makes you distrust everyone around you. Yeah, it's like just a a, a molecule of this thing can take over. Uh, uh, another organism so there's that paranoia that grows between the different people and the monster plays on this by sort of uh, leaving uh, objects that sort of cause misdirection in terms of like suspicion uh, and uh, just to go back to Lovecraft um, you know I think like for um, Campbell uh, and uh, for Carpenter maybe like they're both taking elements from at the mountains of madness which is also set in the arctic yes and, and that was like that was creatures. also a a horror a lovecraft horror element a story with science fictional elements and i i'm pretty sure it was published not in a horror magazine but in a science fiction magazine yes yes yeah, so yeah, campbell was definitely familiar with that story yeah so and yeah it's like this similar setup which is scientists go out into the bleak wastelands of the Arctic, and they discover something that's like older than mankind, tens of thousands of years old. This unknowable intelligence, which is which just consumes people one by one. Uh, like the, the thing that John Carpenter's movie has, um, like the Howard Hawks one, is like jingoistic American knockabout action movie. Uh, his one is very much paranoia. You can't, like, it's a small group of people, they're trapped together in a wasteland and there's no way out and any one of them could be infected and it's all it's the film's always good at giving like it's never contrived when someone disappears it's always good at, at seed putting seeds of doubt in, in terms of how people um interpret each other's actions and the physical effects are fantastic exactly yeah and and one la- one thing that i'll add uh to this is that you know I- People uh, that are listening to us may or may not know that I'm somewhat of a science fiction buff. And you often get films that are great films, but the science fiction in it is not that impressive. Or you get, you know, films with great science fictional stories, but they're not that great as films. But you, and very rarely you get a film that is both great science fiction, but also great cinema. And I think the thing is among those uh, that, like, you know, checks both of those circles so that's why i i really like this film uh so much yeah it, it's it's a classic film and it's one i revisit quite often as well have you seen i, I have not seen the well it was initially branded as a remake and then it was branded as a prequel the 2011 one have you seen it uh the one with mary elizabeth winstead i yeah. know nothing about it sorry i just it's... know it came out in 2011 I watched it a few years after it came out, and it, I was thoroughly underwhelmed. I went in with an open mind because yes, it's, it's a uh, another movie. The original role was still there, um, and um, I wanted 
and you know, I was interested in seeing sort of an expanded universe where you get what happened with the um, uh, original scientists who found the avian and um, like the special effects were mostly CG and they weren't that impressive. Um, it was a, essentially a retread of John Carpenter's story. Uh, none of the characters were that interesting. Um, yeah, uh, I don't think I'd ever watch it again. It's 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 okay. It's not terrible, but it's, I wouldn't watch it again. Maybe if you're a completionist, you would like have watch it. Yeah, and the reason I haven't watched it is just I haven't had the chance. I'm not uh, like you just said. It it like it doesn't really take away from the original. It just it's just there, and you can easily ignore it. I'm not. I've never held the view that a remake or a sequel or anything diminishes the original in any way it's just I'm, I'm i'm someone who has no problem ignoring something that they don't like yeah yeah i i, I honestly don't get the furore that happens whenever a remake is announced it's just like well the yeah. original still exists so yeah i mean on. i'll i'll happily bash it if i write a review about it but it i don't care that it is there yeah yeah like just the thought of a remake sets people off but uh whatever yeah, although and I do say that you know just from what you mentioned, just to, to to give my opinion on it from from your brief description, the expansion of the universe. I mean, it it's great in some instances, but it seems to me that it would diminish the Lovecraftian nature of, uh, of the of the story because part of the appeal is that we don't really know anything about this monster. We just the thread comes uh, partly from the unknowability and. Um, I'm not sure what a better word for that is, but something along those lines. Yeah, the mysterious nature when someone explains it's like when you reveal like the monster in a horror movie. Sometimes it's a complete flop. Yeah, and that's a lot of the criticism that Ridley Scott has been getting for like his prequels to the Alien movie. Um, like the sense of mystery, like finding a crashed spaceship in the Arctic, which is like tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of years old. It's fantastic. And uh, you can utilize it in any way. Yeah. And uh, uh, yeah. Although I mean, to to in fairness to Ridley Scott, I mean, the Alien franchise was already uh, exploited to the max before he even started making the prequels. I'll, I'll uh, go on record as saying I think Prometheus was okay, and I liked the uh, other one he did. Uh, Alien. I've only seen Covenant. Prometheus. I- I did not see Alien Covenant. I yeah, I, I agree with you. I, I I did not hate Prometheus. I thought, especially uh, Michael Fassbender's character. I thought he was very very well done. Oh, then watch Alien Covenant because he's fantastic in that. Oh uh, yeah, I, I might I might check it out again. It's not. I have nothing against. It, I just haven't gotten around to to watching it. All right. So I think we've uh, we've talked enough about the thing. So what's uh, what's your next item on the list? So I want to do. Uh... I want to go back to 1950. Uh, this is probably um, one of Akira Kurosawa's uh, best films, in my opinion. Although I, uh, um, Scandal, and it's another it, one that I have not seen. Uh, okay, uh, yeah, it's it's one that not many people actually talk about. Uh, you know, obviously, Seven Samurai is probably his most famous one. Um, Throne of Blood. Or Hidden Fortress. Um, yeah. of well, Rang. it came out in 1950, which is when he released. Um, um, I'm so bad with titles. The first movie that made him popular. Um, I don't know. The one with the three points of view. Oh, Rashomon. 
Rashomon, yeah. So that came out in 1950, and this one came out also also came out in 1950. So I feel like maybe that's part of the reason why it's been overshadowed. I mean, perhaps. Um, but even though it came out in 1950, it's still relevant today because it's all about how the media can manipulate people's views. Okay. Uh, uh, and um, es essentially, it's uh, got Toshiro Mufune as an artist, Ichiro uh, Aoi. And uh, he goes to an onsen, and on the way, uh, he oh he plays a painter. Uh, on the way, he's painting a magnificent view, and he encounters a singer, uh, Miyako Saijo, and um, he offers her a lift to uh, Hot Springs that they they both happen to be staying at, and um, some journalists from a tabloid magazine uh, take some pictures of them, and. Uh, this like the tabloid magazine is uh, uh, Castori. Uh, these are sort of like printed on cheap paper, and um, they're kind of like scandal scandal mags, I guess. And uh, they they pop up and disappear. Uh, they're only interested in trying to sell as many numbers as possible. And the editor of this uh, magazine is this really ruthless um, scumbag who. Uh, creates uh, a false narrative about these two people the singer and this painter actually being lovers uh, uh, on a sort of like secret assignation to the hot springs and um, so you've got this media battle going on where uh, Toshiro Mufune's character is sort of like trying to clear his name and um, he hires a lawyer uh, Hiruta played by Takashi Shimura and over the Christmas period, um, uh, like they're preparing for a court battle, and um, Hiruta is played by Takashi Shimura, who's like um, he was in Ikiru, the main uh, actor in that. Yeah, and uh, you discover that Hiruta, the lawyer, um, he's a really <laughs> a, a weak character because he allows other people to. Um, corrupt him essentially and uh but like the one light in his life is his daughter masako who has tuberculosis and um like the family hiroto's family um uh, and uh the artist uh ichiro aoi and uh the singer miyako saijo uh sort of mixed together and so hiroto is paid to uh throw the case by the editor and meanwhile, you, uh, you've got this other storyline where the sick daughter Masako is get is um, she's like like um, she's suffering so much, but she's finding some pleasure in life with this singer and um, the painter, and um, she's such a pure character that she um, she has the potential to bring out the best in her father, who becomes really rather wretched over the course of the film. And it features some like it's it's a simple story, but it's got some really brilliant dialogue, which gets to the heart of like how people become sort of um, bitter, uh, twisted deceivers, um, and the the regret these people have in their hearts. And uh, as it comes close to the New Year period, Hiruta is like desperate to make amends, and uh, this case might be how he can do it. And uh, it's it's a simple drama, but like it 
hits upon sort of like simple human truths which are just recognizable to anybody who's like um experienced life had regrets and um you know wants to be better and like because it's set over the new year period a time when people make resolutions you you get that in the film like the resolution to be better and it, it culminates in a court it culminates in the a, a moment in court where he's given that opportunity yeah when i uh it, it does it definitely does sound interesting uh and does sound very um a very fascinating uh, set of characters when i saw it in your list i i tried to seek it out because there's there are not that many kurosawa films that i haven't seen maybe with the exception of his early propaganda films which are really hard to find i i've seen most of it what he's done uh early and late work but this one i couldn't i couldn't find it was the only place that i could find it was in the criterion cha channel but i didn't have a subscription to that and i didn't want to i didn't want to buy one right now i might eventually but I, my library didn't have it. Nowhere that I could find that I could buy it or I could rent it. It was just, uh, it was it was hard to get. So that's why I, I didn't. But I was very curious to act to be able to see it. So yeah, the first time I, uh, well, the first time I saw it was the um, Criterion Collection uh, on DVD. So it's like uh, in my university library, um, and I was just renting. Well. Not yeah, borrowing, I should say, borrowing all of the Kurosawa films. There's like the complete collection there from um, what's that propaganda film? The most beautifulest thing is it about the uh, uh, the women Kurosawa working propaganda in the factory? Film? Yeah, or, I, I don't remember. Or like the 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 uh, martial arts movies he was making in the 1930s. The judo, the judo ones. Yeah, yeah. All the way through to like um, uh. Uh, like his more famous titles, like Seven Samurai and um, Hidden Fortress, and um, yeah, and Scan Scandal stood out to me a lot because it's still relevant for contemporary times as well. Like the practices that you see in the media in this film happen to this very day, and in terms of um, like how they can alter people's perceptions by planting certain ideas. Uh, it's also got really great performances from Takashi Shimura, who's like just this guy riven with regret and self-loathing um and Toshiro Mufune who's uh, gives a good performance as the artist as well yeah i mean he always does yeah i i uh, yeah it's, it's it's a film that takes place over christmas uh there's christmas trees and presents and santa hats um and there's old lang syne as well a brilliant scene where um you get everybody singing it in a bar, and you get like close-ups on various characters, like uh, yakuza and like a businessman and uh, or hostesses, and like they're all just tired, worn-out people. And this is like five years after the war, uh, just before the economic boom. It's like people are struggling, and they're looking for like that a chance of redemption, and it's like almost palpable in this film. Yeah, and I think it's a great recommendation because. Uh... Our audience is likely f to be familiar with Kurosawa, but maybe not so much with this film. So if you, you know, if you have a subscription to Criterion, at least in the U.S., uh, check it out. Otherwise, you can probably buy it from the Criterion Collection, but I didn't want to buy one of their DVDs, mostly because I try to avoid f collecting physical media, like I've mentioned before. But I was also hoping that maybe my library would have it, but I guess it didn't. Neither my university library didn't have it, or my local library didn't have it. I think one of the things about compiling these lists and doing this podcast has uh, been um, 
to actually revisit a lot of my physical media collection. So, yeah. But yeah, and I've been trying to get check- rid of mine, so I don't have that many DVDs. Yeah. Okay, but yeah, I will definitely check it out uh, as soon as I can get my hands on it. Um, okay, so my the next film that I have is a, another uh, fairy tale sort of film, and this maybe fits more comfortably into the fairy tale genre, and that is uh, Jean-Pierre Jeunet, uh, 1995 or 1996, I'm not sure, a film, The City of Lost Children. And it's a um, a somewhat strange film about a scientist. Well, it's it it features an ensemble cast, but uh, it sort of all revolves around a scientist, or rather a, a a creation of a scientist who is unable to dream and is a scientist himself. So he's been kidnapping children around this uh, uh, strange and mysterious city, hoping to steal their dreams and give himself happiness. And um, uh, the relationship. To Christmas is that it's visual aesthetic and the whole thing kind of looks like a fairy tale and reminds me a lot of Christmas. But it's also, I, I do believe uh, it's set around Christmas that it features images such as Santa Clauses uh, uh, dropping from the chimney and trying to make this guy laugh and he's unable to uh, and things like that. Uh, and it's a very beautiful story. Uh, it is, I think, uh, it's, well, it's technically it's direct, is a collaboration between uh, Jean-Pierre Jeunet and uh, what's the other guy's name, Mark something. Uh, Mark uh, Mark Caro, and from my understanding is that Jean-Pierre Jeunet mostly did the directing of the actors and all that, and Mark Caro was mostly the graphic designer, sort of was mostly responsible for the uh, visual aesthetic of the of the piece, and you can sort of see that because they collaborated in a movie before called Delicatessen, which is also a great movie in my opinion, uh, but then they, they did not, uh, Jean-Pierre Jeunet went on to make Amelie, and you can sort of immediately see the difference. Uh, hmm. in Amelie. Yeah, that's much more lighter hearted and uh like and less it looks physical effects. Yeah. Not as dark. So have you have you seen The City of Lost Children? Yes, I have. Yeah, no, it's one that uh I remember from my teenage years. Yeah, it's it's for me it's a film that I, I can say that I revisit it every year, but I um I, I watch it quite quite frequently, and it's I, I don't think is as uh, from a filmmaking point. I don't think it's as good as Delicatessen, but I I really I really like it. I think it's uh, it's uh, it's so unique and it's so distinct, uh, and the actings are so in a sense over the top that it it does have it really wholeheartedly embraces the fairy tale aesthetic, sort of the the fable uh, type aesthetic. It's like it's like the film version of reading uh, like a, a children's book to your kid uh, as you try to, to make him fall asleep. Or, or even a, like a graphic novel. Like the way... Oh, absolutely, yeah. The way that like the, the camera placement and um, like the framing of everything, just uh, like the actual physical effects, the sets, like they have that uh, graphic novel feel to it. And like I use the word unique in reviews, like these days, it feels like whenever a film does anything slightly different, I use it too much probably. Uh, this film is genuinely unique in terms of atmosphere and its look. And and even the story is pretty pretty out there. Yeah, it's really dark. At least as far as cinema goes, I'm 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 guessing you know people, uh, comic book readers and uh, and uh, graphic novel readers are probably maybe have a 
a larger collection of these kind of stories, but for cinema, it is it is a fairly unique story. Can't imagine a major studio releasing something like that these days. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Uh, and it's also you know for all the darkness that it is, it is fairly uh, fairly funny too in some cases. Oh yeah, there's a, a lot of humor, such as how the fleas travel around different objects, yeah. and you see also the soundtrack is great too. Yeah, it's an- Antonio Badalamenti, the guy that did Twin Peaks, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, Angelo Badalamenti. Yeah, sorry about my pronunciation. Oh, it's all right. Yeah, it's it's I I I've said this. Uh, I I always say this to my friend. It's a film that only the French could have done. Yeah, it, it it definitely does have that European feel to it. Yeah. Um. Yeah. So, all right. What's 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 next on your list? So I've got two more. Um. The next one is Battle Royale 2. Um, that was, I initially put that in as a joke, simply because the film is set over Christmas. Um, yeah, I, reality, I forgot about that when you put it. I, I, and I, I'm still, I still don't remember much about that movie, but I did, I've completely <laughs> forgotten that it had a Christmas uh, setting. Yeah, and Christmas, Christmas music as well, and uh, Ricky Takeuchi with like decorations and stuff. Um, and uh, uh, actually, um, Battle Royale, I would watch it on New Year's Eve, going into New Year's Day, along with a film called um, The Royal Space Force Wings of Honey and Meese. And I think uh, like it's something I did as a teenager and uh, occasionally do now, and it's kind of like the message of both films is like to seize the day, so to speak. So they don't... Uh, like, like Royal Space Force Wings of Honey and Meese takes place... Uh, like the finale takes place... Uh, over the winter period, I think, and um, that has more of a festive feel because it's um, uh, it has all of the visual signifiers of um, Christmas, like uh, uh, lighting and so forth, and snow. Uh, Battle Royale doesn't, but like again, its message of like seize the day. This is like something I needed to remind myself, like every time I enter a new year. Uh, yeah, the, so I've got one more film after this. So if you'd like to take it away. Um, all right. So uh, the, my, the next one, which is for me is the one before last, is uh, Edward Scissorhands. Mm-hmm. And you sort of, I, I, I kind of, I'm, I'm realizing now that there's a theme in my, uh, in my choices. Like I'm, I'm, I've, I've been going for all these like gothic-like fairy tale uh, aesthetics uh, in the films that I've chosen for this list. But um, and sort of Edward Scissorhands that doesn't definitely uh, fits into into that category. There's another Tim Burton, uh, the second Tim Burton mentioned in this in this episode after uh, Nightmare Before Christmas, and it's um, I, I do believe it's his first collaboration with uh, Johnny Depp. I don't think yes. they did anything before this. Okay, yeah, and it's about you know just to give a very quick plot summary, it's about uh, this uh, the unfinished creation of a scientist who died before he could complete uh, this uh, person. Uh, who left him with scissors uh, and we, instead of hands, and it, so of course that makes no sense at all. But again, it fits into that that mythical gothic-like, uh, almost like urban gothic in the sense of, of style of the film uh, that um, that Tim Burton employs. And I did, I mean, I do think this is set during Christmas or around Christmas, at least for part of it. There's definitely there's all the ice statues that he does and the, with the snow and all that. 
but it also has that very Christmassy uh, feeling about it. And it's you know there, there's really I mean it's a it's an it's an easy film to like, but I also do think that it is probably Tim Burton at his best as a director and as a designer in a sense. Yeah. And this is before Johnny Depp became what he became, where he became sort of a caricature of himself, kind of like Tim Burton in a sense. But his acting here is genuinely uh, amazing. Hmm. Yeah, his early performances, like What's Eating Gilbert Grape, are really great. And um, yeah, yeah, it does feel like they've both declined. Uh, yeah. Um, although Johnny Depp is an actor, so I guess it is just you know he's just in it for the money. Well, not necessarily, but you know he just can do whatever scripts are coming his way. Hmm. Okay, so what's what's your next uh, next film? So my final one is Tokyo Godfathers by Satoshi Kon. Okay, anima- animated at Madhouse Studios, um, and this is again uh, like a, a major theme with a lot of the films that uh, I've selected are like rebirth, second chances, um, and Tokyo Godfathers has that set over the Christmas period, and these three homeless people. Uh, Gin, a gambler, Miyuki, uh, a teenage girl who's run away from home, and Hannah, a drag queen. Um, they discover a baby that's been abandoned in a trash pile, and they try to reunite, reunite the baby with her mother. And uh, throughout the journey, um, you discover more about the baby's background, but also uh, about the free homeless people's background as well. And you meet all sorts of characters. Uh, you get a real sense of like life in central Tokyo and life as a homeless person as well. And you've got these three fantastic characters and a baby. Um, like the adventure takes on uh, magical, almost spiritual uh, things because there's the sense that like there's a god out there looking out for them. And for the baby, especially. Yeah, for the baby especially, like the baby, like God's smiling on the baby at all times. And um, these three characters who've discovered the baby are able to um, reunite figures from their past and um, sort of earn uh, a second chance at life. Um, and it culminates like on New Year's Day, uh, like over the Hatsumode period in Japan, where people, like that's the major holiday at that time of the year, like New Year's, where you go to the shrine. You try to divest yourself of all the sins you've accrued over the year, and you make the promise that you'll like tackle the, that you'll you'll make a better effort in the new year. And uh, yeah, the film just uh, peaks at that moment. And uh, if you've never seen a Satoshi Kon film before, that's a really good entry point. I actually first saw it when I lived in Tokyo uh, in 2016. So it was, uh, and um, it was like a couple of days before I ended. Uh, I did my own Hatsumori sort of journey. So um, it's very atmospheric for me. And um, the film, even if you've never been to Tokyo, like, like the atmosphere will, you will feel that atmosphere as well. Yeah, but I'm only going to add that, you know, if this is the first Satoshi Kon film that you watch, then you should be strapped in for a surprise when you watch your second Satoshi Kon film because it will be nothing like this. Uh, oh, yeah. This is his, probably his most... Uh, normal film, I guess. Most uh, accessible. Yeah. Yeah. I had not seen this film before. I watched it per your after I saw it on your list, and I was blown away with it. It's it's of course I I I try to reserve judgment if uh, for a film that I've seen only once, but it's 
it might be my favorite, one of my favorite Japanese films. Uh, okay. I was, wow. I was, imp- I was impressed. I was, you know, thoroughly moved and impressed by it. I was, it's not only, not only of, on how good it is, the story, how well it flows, how, how it sometimes it, it even bypasses sort of the conventional, uh, the conventional, uh, norms, mores of norms of, uh, writing where, you know, just sometimes things just happen for no reason. And the, instead of, you know, trying to come up with some explanation, the, the, the the film just goes on with it and it just moves on to the next thing and it's it's it does that so well but it's just but how i think how compassionately the homeless characters are treated how how they're not there there's a lot of comedy coming out of them but it's never at their expense absolutely it's yeah this film is told from multiple perspectives and you get a lot of context for these perspectives and the character arcs are, are really great yeah, and with the exception, with the exception of that one cab driver that is just there, that is just called twice by the one character, no character is two dimensional in this film. Like every, almost every character that has a speaking role that appears on the screen, no, no matter how, how for how little, we do get a glimpse, enough of a glimpse of them, just to make them feel real and, uh, and uh, if not interesting, then definitely um, complex people. Yeah, it's it's a film about like overcoming those first appearances because like you, you there are multiple scenes where people because the three main characters are homeless because they smell bad they look bad they're shunned but we spend so much time with them like they like human beings that we feel empathy for and like even yakuza like there's a obnoxious yakuza guy he turns out to be like a likable character for many uh, people in that world. It reminded me a lot of uh, uh, that uh, film uh, Crash that came out in two thousand four, two thousand five. Hmm. Uh, about uh, that, it famously won the Oscars that year, and a lot of people were mad because they thought Brokeback Mountain should have won the Best Picture Oscar. Hmm. Uh, it's and it's Haggis. a lot about Paul Haggis, yeah, something like that. Um, and uh, a lot of, and it's about you know these people in L.A. that are sort of uh, like meet and. Uh, uh, and uh, sort of understand each other better, but I I do think that film is a little bit heavy he- heavy handed, and I do think Talk of Godfathers, of course, came before it, but it it also does it better, in my opinion. Yeah, agreed. Okay, uh, so my my final entry, and here I had a few options. So I had I had uh, I was debating between uh, the apartment, uh, and then uh, directed by Billy Wilder. And I also had Home Alone because that's a very traditional Christmas film. But I also wanted to include just like, I know we said film, but I, I did because there's so many, such a great tradition of TV and television series having Christmas specials. And a lot of them are quite good. I, I wanted to include something from TV. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to mention Home Alone and The Apartment as honorable mentions. But for my last entry... I will go with uh, two episodes from two of my favorite TV shows. I tried really hard to find something from tra- Star Trek in this, but I don't. Star Trek doesn't do Christmas specials, so <laughs> they ha- they have a Halloween special. You know, strangely eh? enough, the original series. Yeah, they def- they have one Halloween episode uh, with ghosts, but uh, but they have no Christmas special. So so I had to pick. So I picked two episodes from two of my favorite TV shows, and one is. Of the one who came in for a cold one from Cheers, and the other one is seasonal seasonal beatings from Peep Show. 
Okay. And both of those are excellent uh, episodes for, for two excellent series. Cheers is somewhat older and, you know, uh, uh, not as recognizable, but it's one of my favorite series and it's absolutely worth watching. Uh, and the, the episode, it's a, I'm pretty sure it's a first season episode called The One Who Came In For A Cold One. And it's, it's, it's not, I, I don't think it said it specifically during Christmas, but it's set in around winter in a very cold day in Boston. And it does have like a lot of Christmassy theme, themes uh, uh, about it. And it's about this mysterious guy who enters, who comes in from a very cold day uh, in Boston. He goes into the bar. Cheers, for those who don't know, is a show about a bar. And uh, pretends to be things that he's not. So first he pretends to be a, 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 a secret agent. And then he pretends to be like a, a, a sports athlete. Then he pretends to be a very rich guy and every, all that. And, you know, one, and it's kind of, and it's all about the interactions of the main character with him and how they each of them perceive uh perceive them to be perceive this guy to be uh, and it's a very well written episode of tv and of course peep show is a, a lot more ridiculous but it's also hilarious and it's about marks um i'm not going to i'm not, i'm not going to summarize uh what uh, what the whole peep show is about uh but uh, one of the characters is having christmas uh, and he's inviting his parents and that is the first time that he does that He's usually very subdued to his parents. And uh, when his parents finally arrived to his apartments, uh, uh, hilarity ensues. Mm, okay. I don't know if you've seen either Cheers of, or Peep Show. I watched the first season of Peep Show. Um, and uh, I've watched a couple of seasons of Cheers. Mostly, we, uh, yeah. So I can, I can picture what you're saying. Okay. Um, I have not seen those episodes, though. Okay. Well, Peep Show is probably the easiest one because it's more recent and it's also maybe a little bit funnier. Uh, Cheers is an 80s sitcom, so it comes with certain conventions that are outdated, but I still think it's a show that was well ahead of its time for, yeah. for the 80s. Uh, and so, from that, we got Frasier. Yes, which I, I enjoy Frasier, but I don't think... Frasier is a very funny show, but is more of a of its time show than I think Cheers was. Okay. Yeah. Uh, nothing against Frasier. I think it's a great show, but I do think that Cheers is a, l- a bit more revolutionary, like a, l- a little bit more innovative, and I think the writing is just a little bit better in Cheers. Okay. And then, of course, Peep Show is just legendary. It's maybe one of the funniest shows ever written. The British, the British are very good with comedies. They, I don't know, I don't know what it is about you guys that makes you so funny, but Maybe because you just focus on six episodes every year and that just gives you, you concentrate the talent in a, in a smaller amount of time. Perhaps. I mean, I wish I had that accessibility to being funny and um, uh, having, you know, being good at words. <laughs> Articulate. <laughs> so what was that? Articulate. That's what I was searching yeah. for. Yeah, yeah. There's always this perception that the British are uh, better at TV than Americans, and that may be may very well be true. But I also think that we we get only the good British show. There's probably a lot of crappy British shows that we just never, never, never get to see. Oh so maybe yeah, you got you guys are not as good as we think you are. I think that's the case of every like cult, uh, culture's sort of exports. They only give out the best. Uh, if, uh, I suppose if you want to see a bog standard British sitcom like mrs brown's boys is probably one you should check never out heard, never heard of it yeah it's on bbc one um it's like, like for a mainstream audience like 
broadly entertaining. Uh, I'm not a particular fan. Like, people kind of look down on it, I suppose. Uh, yeah, Mrs. Brown's Boys. But yeah, Cheers. I recognize Cheers as being like a classic uh, and uh, a sort of trendsetter as well. And um, like yeah. the final episode of Cheers actually remains in my memory, like the sadness of like turning off the lights at the bar. Yeah, it's yeah. I mean, uh, yeah. It's it set a lot of trends. It's 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 not the first show to do this, but it was one of the first shows to popularize was the sort of this the serialized storytelling in in uh, in you know TV shows, and you know that that you know across the season and across the series, the instead of just everything being reset at the end of the episode, which was the norm of sitcoms, and it still is to a certain extent. There's actually there's actually a memory of what happened before, and that will determine. Uh, the next episode. So again, Cheers was not the first to do this, but what was one was p- perhaps the first show to popularize this idea and and sort of make it make it more acceptable in in television. Okay, yeah, because at the time was the uh, producers had the concern that people will not be tuning in into every episode. They'll just you know they might they might just be caught they might be catching a TV uh, like an episode in the middle of the season or something like that, and they don't. They they don't want to be confused if they have not seen the what happened before. Yeah, uh, I think so. Yeah, go ahead. Well, that's a a good note to end the show on, I suppose. Absolutely, yeah. So this so this was uh, our special uh, episode uh, with uh, our, for our Christmas special that is puts the cap on the first season uh, of the show. Um, this was a, like we said in the beginning. This is probably not going to be as polished as everything else. Just because, first of all, because. I, I at least didn't plan a lot of it, and I'm probably not going to put that much effort into editing it as as I did in the other shows. Um, it's pretty, so you're probably going to get all the ums and and whatnots that we have, uh, but um, but uh, yeah. So we'll we haven't decided exactly what we're doing for season two. We'll we'll talk about it. We'll take a a, a break. So we'll be there'll be a, a sort of a, a longer break between this episode and whenever it is the first episode of season two comes out. But we, we will be back. In the meanwhile, please you know listen to all the episodes that we released so far. If you haven't, we we think we've uh, we've uh, made some compelling points and we've had some interesting discussions. Uh, one thing that uh, we always mention is leave feedback uh, on our website. Feel free to comment or uh, send us an email directly. One thing that I've never mentioned before is if you are using iTunes and you enjoy the show, please leave us a positive review there because it does help the visibility of the show if someone is searching for podcasts to listen to. Uh, follow us on Twitter and everything. I'll post the links as usual uh, in the in the description and in the episode uh, in the episode post. Is there anything else, Jason, that you'd like to add before we close the show? No, I'd just like to thank everybody who's taken the time to listen and to thank you for um, producing the show. Yeah, absolutely, and thank you, thank you for uh, agreeing to be part of it. That might be my pleasure. All right, so uh, happy holidays, Merry Christmas, and uh, ah, Merry Christmas. We'll, yes, uh, and uh, I guess uh, we look forward to returning for season two and whatever that will, uh, whatever film discussion that will bring us. Absolutely. See you in the new year. <laughs> <laughs>